0: Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series in James. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. First time I've played a PBS special for a sermon here before I start speaking, but um, I I don't know if you guys know me very well, but I'm just going to give you a quick glance into my life. I hate waiting. I absolutely despise it. I go to Walmart very early in the morning and very late at night because I don't want to wait in the lines. I live in Tulsa because I don't want to wait in traffic. I don't want to wait for anything. Uh, You will never find me out on a stream in a lake casting a line anywhere, because waiting for fish to bite is on my top three list of what I don't want to do. I will never be in a deer stand. I will never be a bow hunter waiting for the king buck to come along who's probably never going to come along in my entire life because I don't like waiting. I graduated college in four years because I didn't want to wait another year to get a degree. I take the long way because I don't want to wait at stoplights. I show up fashionably late because the party better get going by the time I'm there. I don't want to wait for it to start. I don't like waiting. I don't like unwrapping my food because I got to wait to eat it. I just want it on a plate, ready, in the fork, in the mouth. Let's go. And so that song is the vein of my existence. (laughs) Let's talk about patience this morning. Let's talk about something that all of us need to develop the skill and the art of learning patience and being patient Christians. We've been, if you're just joining us, we've been diving into the softest, the most comfortable New Testament letter <laughs> that you could ever read or listen to. Uh, the book of James, facetiously speaking, the book of James is, is tough. He steps on your toes, he says the difficult thing, he calls a spade a spade, and he lets the chips fall where they may. And we just finished the last major section of James. Actually, if you heard, just two weeks ago, we we did part two of a sermon on being slow to anger. And during that time, we talked about three types of angry people, the critical judger, the arrogant boaster, and the unjust employer. And it's interesting what James says about anger, just to kind of go back and review a little bit, is he doesn't say that it's a sin to be angry. He encourages us to be slow to anger to be patient in our anger, to think through these situations and these times where we are tempted to get angry justly or unjustly. Uh, What I try to communicate is that the struggle all of us have related to anger is that sometimes we get angry at the wrong things. On the other side of the spectrum, sometimes we don't get angry at the right things. Hopefully that makes sense to you. Uh, We've now covered three main sections in James. It's all based on uh, chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every one of you be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. As we move into chapter 5 now, James is going to conclude his no-nonsense, no-excuses, no-negotiating letter with three items that are extremely important if we're going to be Christians of an authentic and the first of those items is patience. If you truly want to be an authentic Christian, if you want to have an authentic faith that takes the word of God seriously, that listens intently, that pursues truth consistently, James is telling us it'll take a colossal amount of patience. Waiting, waiting on God, waiting on others graciously and compassionately. You're going to see three aspects of patience. And just a handful of verses here in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. We're going to talk about the essence of patience. We're going to see some examples of patience. And finally, evidence of patience. Verse 12 is a, a verse that's probably really familiar to you. And if you look down at your text, it sounds a lot like Jesus again in verse 12. Yet our, Let our yes be yes and our no be no. Why don't we just take a, a few seconds. Why don't you stand up where you are. I would like to read this passage in honor and respect of God's word, let's just, let's just read this in its entirety from James chapter five, verse seven through 12. You guys just follow along in your text with me. James five, verse seven. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you might not fall under condemnation. Let's pray one more time this morning. Father in heaven, again, we just thank you for the opportunity that we have now to turn our hearts, our attention to your word. Lord, as we wrap up and and continue to finish and, and get to the end of our sermon series on James I just pray for myself, I pray for everybody here, that we would understand what he is trying to tell us about being an authentic Christian. We would hear the hard things, we would hear the soft and the compassionate things as well. But ultimately, that we wouldn't just be listeners who delude themselves and hear the word, but those who put it into practice, who apply the word, who look in the mirror as we read the word and see the areas of our hearts that need to be changed to become more and more like the image of your Son, Jesus. We pray all these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. For you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Number one in your outline this morning, the essence of patience. Now, patience is a, a very profound and key characteristic of authentic faith, as James has been delivering this letter to us. For James, patience is so important Steadfast endurance is that he opens his letter talking about it, and he will bring it back, and now he'll close his letter talking about this utmost important characteristics of developing patience in the Christian life. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, James said that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patient endurance. And so he encouraged us to be patient when we experience trials. Not necessarily to avoid them, but to go through them patiently, steadfastly, always relying on Christ. Now James closes his letter in the same way that he opened it. Just as he called believers to be patient at the beginning, he calls us to be patient at the end. Knowing that people don't need to be taught as much as they need to be reminded, and that repetition is the mother of learning, this idea of patience forms bookends, For the Christian, as we read this letter, living in a fallen world, in other words, you will need to hone and experience and grow in patience. No matter what you're going through, no matter where you are in life, if you're single, if you're married, if you've got a girlfriend or a boyfriend, if you're older in life and seasoned as a Christian, James knows that this is such an important aspect that he picks it up and he talks about it over and over again for us. James comes full circle. Talking about patience. And any study of patience will not start with the patience of man. Any study of patience that you will go to in a theology text, in scripture, a word study, you will start in one place and one place alone, and that is with the character and the patience of God. James has us to pursue patience in the Christian life because we have a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit that is patient with us. And probably the first place that you're going to see that clearer than any other place in the Old Testament is Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7. Exodus 34, is a, it's an interesting passage because just before this, the Israelites had worshiped, created, and served a golden calf, and God was about to judge them and condemn them for their idolatry. And he reveals himself to Moses. He tells Moses, you cannot look upon my face. You can only see my back, but I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will reveal myself to you. And in the revelation of the Lord to Moses, he says this to him. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, slow to anger, patient toward wrath, patient with us. Exodus 34, six and seven is the, the closest thing to Israel's first creed. This is their first statement of faith if you looked for that in the Old Testament. So important is this patient aspect of God that you will not only read about it in the law of Moses, you will pick up this verse verbatim in the Psalms, the historical books, the prophets, the songs, in all of the writings. This verse occurs over and over and over again. God wants us to understand his character. He wants us to be changed to become more like him, especially as it regards patience, as James talks about it. Remember it was Jonah who didn't preach to the heathens in Nineveh because he knew that God was what? Patient, Patient compassionate, gracious, and slow to anger. Second Peter Chapter three, verse nine, you'll read a lot of similar thoughts and themes in in Peter, as you will, in James. It reminds us that God is patient toward us, toward sinners, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. James commands us to be patient in life because God has been patient with us. The essence of patience, if we're gonna start, we're gonna talk about this, we're gonna start with the character of God and understand that we have a God who we worship and serve, who is ultimately, perfectly patient, waiting on us. But look how James directly states this command. Look down here your text, verse 7, be patient. Verse 8, you also be patient. This is very straightforward. And at first glance, you might just think, hey, being a Christian is just developing the moral characteristic of a patient person. A bit longer of, of nostrils when you feel that anger coming up inside of you, right? But human patience, I want you to note this, human patience is not first a virtue to be achieved. It is first a gift that is received. Human patience is not first a virtue to be achieved. Patience for us is a gift that we receive. Remember Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, and the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy peace, patience, goodness, kindness. This is something that we have from the Holy Spirit that's been divinely given to us. This verse in Colossians chapter 1 verse 11 says that patience comes from the power of God, which means it's always there for us by simply depending and relying upon him. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and all patience with joy. As believers, you can't just dig down deep, look within you, try harder, dig a little harder to be patient. First, you have to understand that patience is a gift. It's given to us at faith. It's given to us with the Holy Spirit. He allows us to be patient in a new way that we could never be apart from his power and the Spirit's presence in our life. But there's two different Greek words for patience. Uh, As James opened his letter, we saw the first one. I talked a little bit about it, meno is how you would pronounce it. meno is a word that literally means just to remain under. James called us to go through trials. The hard and tough command for us was to remain under trial. Just trust God along the way. Don't try to get out of it. Don't try to avoid it. Just patiently stay under it. It's one aspect of patience. The other aspect of patience is macro, macro through maya, is how you would say it. It literally means to be long of temper. A macro right there at the beginning, a, a long or having a, a, an immense patience, a time where you are, are checking your desires, checking your emotions, checking your feelings. Before you express things, you give patience to those feelings and to those desires. If you want a good definition of patience, Patience could be defined as the willingness to suffer uncomfortable things in order for good things to happen in your life and relationships. Patience is the willingness. Let's just stop and address every part of this (laughs) definition for a second. How many of us really are willing to be patient with people, with situations? Patience is a willingness on your part, on my part, Nobody else's part. To suffer uncomfortable things. Suffer, how many of us want to suffer? No. A willingness to suffer? God wants me to grow in my willingness to suffer. Yep. Uncomfortable things? I mean, I can suffer Disney World and vacations. Those are hard hard things to suffer through uncomfortable things, for good things to happen in your life and relationships. Why don't we like waiting? Because we don't like to suffer and we don't like to be uncomfortable. Comfort zones are interesting places to be, aren't they, as Christians? There's not a lot of learning that happens in the comfort zone. There's no comfort in the learning zone and there's no learning in the comfort zone. So God puts us in places where we are uncomfortable so that we might grow and learn through those things. While comfort zones are beautiful places to be, nothing ever grows there, right? While comfort zones are beautiful places to be, nothing ever grows there. If God is going to grow me as a Christian, if he's gonna grow Mike as a Christian, if he's gonna grow Henry as a Christian, he's gonna put them in positions, places, things, and situations that are uncomfortable and he's going to ask us to suffer through them patiently. You ever heard of this uh, job description for a preacher? Preachers are called to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. My job is to make you very impatient at times as a pastor. Because it's there you learn to grow through those things, with those situations of life that we are not in control of. Thankfully, Thankfully, patience is not something that we will need for eternity. Patience is something that we need while living temporarily in a fallen world, in this earthly life, the here and the now, right? James commands us, be patient, therefore, brothers, verse 7, until when? The coming of the Lord. Patience should be perfected today because the Lord is coming tomorrow, and the Lord is coming tomorrow. That is the tone of the New Testament. It's not far off. It's not in the distant future. Jesus is coming soon. His return is near. When we encounter these experiences and uncomfortable situations that call for our patience, we thank the Lord that it is for a short amount of time. And this present suffering is nothing compared to the immensity and the weight of glory that will come to us in eternity, right? So we can suffer temporarily, For a short time in order to experience the weightiness of God's glory in the future. It's interesting that James doesn't just give us a strong command here. In in verse 9, he also addresses a serious killer to patience. Did you notice that? Look at your text, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Why are we talking about grumbling in the midst of a section about patience? Take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord, getting down in verse 10. Go back up verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you might not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Just like in chapter 4, James addressed the issue of quarreling and fighting amongst one another. Now in chapter 5, he addresses complaining. In other words, James is giving you and I a test. He's asking us to look into our hearts and to our lives. Do you tend to criticize and complain or do you worship and wait? If you are an impatient person, criticizing and complaining usually is a marker of that. The constant complainer has a problem with patience. But your problem with patience is really a problem of providence. Trusting in the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God. If you have a providence problem, you have a much deeper heart problem, which is a much deeper worship problem. See, when we get impatient, we want God to operate off our agenda instead of us operating off God's agenda. Our timetable becomes more important than God's perfect timetable. Our wills, our wants, the things that we want here and now, all of a sudden becomes the first priority in our life above the perfect plan of God to wait patiently for him to work. What is the essence of patience? Patience is the willingness to suffer things that are uncomfortable in order to taste and see that God is good. He works for our good and for his glory, that his timing is perfect, his ways are wonderful, and that we grow through those times of suffering. We grow as we see and taste and see that God is good. Number one is the essence of patience. Number two, examples of patience. Now, James not only describes the essence of patience, he also gives us some firm, concrete examples, many of them that we can understand and really resonate with, some of them that are a little bit harder. He talks about three specific examples in this this paragraph. He talks about the patience of the farmer, the patience of the prophets, and the patience of Job. Job. Which is really interesting. You've got to go to the back at the beginning of Job to see that through all of his suffering and all of his affliction, he never cursed God through all of it. He always stayed faithful and there was an essence of patience about Job. But interesting enough, these farmers, we can kind of understand this a little bit. Farmers have to be patient. There's only so much that you can do, right? But when James writes this in the first century, he was writing in and around the area of Israel and Palestine. And they had two rainy seasons. There was one actually at this time of year, right now, if you go to Israel, it's gonna be cloudy and it's, gonna, it's probably gonna drizzle. It's gonna be a little, uh, you're gonna have some more moisture in Israel than you normally would have. From March through April is the rainy season in Israel. Also about mid-October to mid-November is another rainy season. So everything around Israel is, uh, it kind of revolves around the agricultural calendar. Remember, this is an agrarian society in the Old Testament, and so they planted the seeds before the rains would come. In order to reap a good harvest, you wanted to get the seed in the ground before March, so it has a chance to get down in the roots and to grow. Um, Interesting, I've shared a lot about our time in Kansas. We had a, a lot of farmers that we worked with, and Uh, We would visit, at times, ministry in in rural Kansas for about five and a half years, and one of my favorite farmers out there, his name was Farmer Scott, and Farmer Scott was a retired deacon. He was the guy that was working on our building all the time. He was up there on a normal basis, just like the, the Bill Thruxleys of the world, the Toms of the world, many of you guys, the Scott Sioux songs of the world, always up around here helping out, doing anything they can to chip in for ministry. Farmer Scott was one of my favorite guys. Didn't take Brandy and I along and our family to go over to his house and have dinner with him. And with farmers in Kansas, they all have, I mean, nice homes. They're, they're great. It's out in the country. Um, typically, they're not new homes, they're just very modest. They can live under their means and they're all paid off as farmers, which is great. But nobody really cares about the homes as a farmer in Kansas. If you really want to show your stuff off to your congregation or to your pastor, what you do is you take them to the shed, the metal shed that has all the tools, all the great things that they own and and have in their belongings is in their tool area underneath the shed. And so we eat with Scott and Kathy, have a great dinner with them, and Scott's just, I can just tell he's itching. He doesn't say anything during the meal too much until right after he's like, Jared, you got to come see my shed. And so I'm like, all right, let's go see the shed, Scott. This is good stuff. We walk out there, and I walk into this great workbench area. There's tools everywhere. You can just tell this guy spends a lot of time working on stuff as a retired guy in his shed. He's got a car that he's working on. The, the hood of the car, of the car is, is flipped up. He's got tools laying around. There's stuff on the floor. And he's walking me through all of it. And back in the corner... Underneath this this massive drape is a green John Deere, about a 10-year-old, pristine condition tractor. What you got to know about Scott is that Scott got into farming for a little bit, didn't really work out super well for his family. He had to sell off his land, sell off his estate that he owned, basically, and he just kept the homestead area instead, with the shed, of course. And so I look at Scott and I'm like, "Scott, you know, this is awesome shed. You sold your farm. Why do you still have the tractor back there?" It's a good question. Walks over, he grabs the keys and he fires it up. And he just listens to it. It's like he was listening to his favorite song from the 60s. He got lost hearing the motor of his John Deere tractor. And I'm like, Scott, I realize this tractor's great for you and it's probably worth more than anything that I personally own, even in my home. But why do you have this tractor if you don't have a farm? And he said, Jared, what I love to do in the morning is I wake up early, I pour a cup of coffee, I get my paper off the front porch, I go out to the shed and I read the paper sitting on my tractor. Every so often he backs it out just to pull it right back in the shed. <laughs> waiting around as a farmer sitting on his tractor. James' idea of the farmer is a little bit different. When he talks about the patience of the farmer, it's different than Deacon Scott. All right, The example of the farmer teaches us that patience isn't passive waiting. Patience isn't passive waiting. A good farmer doesn't just plant the seed in the ground and walk away and just expect there to be this great produce and harvest and crop that comes up. No, a good farmer, as he patiently waits, he pulls the weeds, he channels the water, he does anything and everything he can to soften the soil and hopefully produce a good crop. Patience, the first thing we want to say about this from this example, patience is not passively waiting. Patience is active. It's actively trusting God as we wait on him. Number two, patience isn't sitting idly. It's praying expectantly. Patience doesn't mean that we sit around idly. It means that we pray expectantly. And James gives us the example of the prophets here. He says, Consider the prophets of old who spoke the word of God to you and delivered their message of of condemnation, but also salvation and repentance, if you would simply turn to God. And we have example after example of the prophets in their ministries we see Daniel, who prayed for God to remember his people, Israel, and to be faithful to the covenant. We remember Jeremiah who prayed tearfully. He was the weeping prophet in his prayers. We remember Isaiah who constantly prayed confessionally. as you guys are reading right now, I think, in the lighthouse flock room all over that our adult fellowship, you see Isaiah praying and confessing the sins of the people of Israel. Instead of just speaking of justice, the the prophets performed acts of justice. They weren't just sitting around waiting. In their patience, they were acting justly. Remember Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? All of that is part of being patient. Patient isn't just waiting idly. It's praying expectantly. And James knows we don't just need good examples. We also need strong theology. Right? So he comes back to the character of God once again. Not only the patience of God, he talks about the farmers, he talks about the prophets, but now he reminds us that God is compassionate and merciful. Why is James bringing up those two characteristics of who God is? Isaiah 30, verse 18, is probably one of my very favorite verses on patience in order to understand it correctly for us as Christians. There's a lot in the context there. I won't go back into it right now. We've talked about it probably before in the past. I do just want to read this verse. It says, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Notice who the subject is. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice and blessed are all those who wait for him. Which one is it? Are we waiting for him or is God waiting for us? The answer is yes. But I can tell you more often than not, when we feel like God is not working on our behalf, when we are getting frustrated and getting impatient with God, it's not the problem of us needing and waiting on him, it's the problem of God waiting on us, right? And in those moments when he is waiting on us in those times when we need desperately need to be patient, those moments is when we need the compassion and the mercy of God more than anything else to bring us through those trials, to help us to remain under them to patiently endure whatever this fallen world is throwing at us. The divine irony is that patience is not so much us waiting on God. Patience is God waiting on us, waiting on our hearts to be transformed. We've got the essence of patience. You've seen some examples of patience. Let's talk about evidence of patience. This last verse, verse 12, look down at your text. But above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or earth or by any other oath. And what you need to know in Israel in the Old Testament, even in the law at times, there's, there's uh, so at least an oral tradition that if you're going to make an oath, you would swear by the God of the Bible, by the God of heaven, by the tabernacle, by his presence. James is saying here, do not swear either by heaven or by earth. Don't swear on any of that stuff or by any other oath. But just let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you might not fall under condemnation. There's a really old pastor, Louis Smeads. Have you ever heard this name before? He was, a, he was a minister in California for a while. He passed away early 2000s. I think 2002 has been at least 20 years or so now. Uh, he's most, most known as a pastor for his books on forgiveness, but he wrote an essay, and it's in, entitled, Learning to Live the Love We Promise learning to live the love we promise. And I, got, I was introduced to it by another pastor that I love Listened to and, and went back and read the essay. It's really good, and I would recommend it to you if you can get a copy. But he says a lot of things about promises and about waiting and being people of our word. He says that just as uh, one, of the, one of the quotes that he has in this book, as he's talking about forgiveness too, it says just as forgiveness is the one way to be free from your painful past so promising and commitment and honesty is the only way to be free from your unpredictable future let me read that again just as forgiveness is the one way to be free from your painful past so promising commitment and honesty is the only way to be free from your unpredictable future in other words What he's saying is, if we don't forgive people, whatever has happened, we become enslaved or controlled to our past. The past continues to eat up and have an effect in our life, present day, which if we would have forgiven, we wouldn't have to be wrestling with it and keep struggling with it. He says, unforgiving people are more like animals or machines, So with animals, if something happens to an animal, they are predisposed to respond in a certain way. With a machine, if something happens at one step in the process, you're gonna go and and the gears are clicking, it's gonna lead to the next step in the process. If you're an unforgiving person, you're more like an animal, animal or machine, right? Because you have charted a path for your life, you have made a decision that you're gonna go in this direction and there is no going back until you make the hard decision to go back and to forgive. You're just going to be predisposed to building up bitterness and anger, and unforgiveness is going to root in your heart. But but there's a a connection here between the past and the future. This is making promises, being true to yourself is the only way to have forgiveness or um, freedom from an unpredictable future. What that means is, is two things. Unforgiven people are enslaved by what has happened to them in the past. Uncommitted or unpromising people are enslaved because of their unpredictable future. And he gives an example. This is so great. He says, since we got married, my wife has lived with five men and they were all me. (laughs) The only reason they stuck together was because of the promise, the word that they had made to one another. He said, if I let go of that promise, I would have no idea who I am. I wanna know. Am I really the person I was in my 40s? Am I the person I was in my 50s? Or the person I was in my 60s? And how do I know who I am? His answer was because I made a commitment. I made a promise. My promise and my word is who I am. We make commitments at baptism. We make commitments to the Lord at saving faith. We make commitments in our careers. We make commitments in our contracts. Every time you cite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, you are making a commitment back to God. And he says, sometimes I don't believe it. Sometimes I don't want to believe my commitment. Sometimes I don't want to listen to it. Sometimes I don't want to follow through. Who am I if I don't stick to my promises? If I don't let my yes be yes and my no be no. He says nobody. If I don't have my word or I don't have my integrity, you, I, we're nobody. A close friend of mine puts it this way. Dignity and integrity are two things that everyone owns exclusively. No one can take them from you. You can only give them away. Dignity and integrity are two things that everyone owns exclusively. No one can take them from you you can only give them away. Or let me put it this way. All of us can say one of two things. Either self, self-fulfillment will come before truth in my life, or truth will come before self-fulfillment. James puts it this way. Truth and integrity, if you put those before self-fulfillment, you'll have both. If you put truth and integrity after self-fulfillment, you will have neither. And it's going to be really hard to get them back. G.K. Chesterton has a great thought on being people of promise. A promise is an appointment you make with yourself. A promise is an appointment you make with yourself. Let's, uh, Let's wrap this up, and I want to do this a little bit differently. I'm not going to give a few points of conclusion here. I just want to kind of talk about we how have we gotten into this place in the world where we are such dishonest people? We are no longer a, a verbal promise keeping handshake culture. Now, if you want to enter into an agreement with somebody, you better sign on the contract. And that contract better be specifically worded if you don't want to break it. Why do we struggle with dishonesty so much? What was the first act of dishonesty? What was the first act of um, dishonesty and and people not keeping their word in the Old Testament? It's going to take us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, back to the first sin ever committed. When Adam and Eve saw that the tree was good for fruit, the fruit was good for food, what did they do? They put self-fulfillment before truth made a decision right there. They were going to live for themselves what they wanted, that desire, before they lived for God and for what was ultimately true. When they saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes, they put their feelings before truth. They put their appetite before truth. When they heard from Satan that they could be like God... They put that passion, that desire, they, that, they entertained that lie that is beneath every other lie and every other sin that you will ever experience. They believed in their own independence. They believed that they didn't need God. They didn't submit to God. They forgot how dependent they were created to be. If you believe you can live your life without complete submission to God, you and I are out of touch with reality. How long are you going to live without submitting in complete dependence on God the second that you are born into this world? All around you, the world is telling you, just, just be true to yourself. Free yourself from all constraints. Don't submit to anybody. Do your own thing. How long is that going to last the second that you are born into this world? I just want to be free. You were created to be dependent. We were created to be Dependent. We don't have the capacity, the reasonableness, the thinking, the power, the understanding, the knowledge in and of ourselves to lead our own lives how we want to lead it apart from God. Therefore, the authentic faith is also an authentic submission and patience to the God who created us, to depend on him, to let go of our independence and be completely dependent, trusting in God instead. Be honest. Here's what what God says. Here's what we need, all of us need to be. Be honest that you're dishonest. James is, is looking at all of us in the mirror, and he's saying, you are dishonest apart from me. Be honest about it. If you want to come, if you want to be a Christian, here's the first thing you do. If, if you think being a Christian is being a, a more honest person about keeping your word, you have totally missed it. Totally missed it. The first thing that you'd have to do of being a Christian is to admit that you're dishonest, that you can never keep your word on your own. And if it's up to you, it would never come to fruition anyway. Be honest with yourself that you are dishonest apart from Christ. Your own dishonesty will damn you. The only dishonesty that will damn you is the dishonesty about your dishonesty. The only honesty that will save you is to be honest about your own dishonesty. Does that make sense to you? Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, almost verbatim, James is quoting Jesus. Comes right out of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five. He's trying to bring a kingdom ethic If you can't live life without being honest with people, without letting your yes be yes and your no be no, you have no fabric for any kind of existence in society to to happen at all. Imagine a world in which everybody constantly is dishonest, lying to one another, saying something to their face, and doing something else behind their back. Imagine a world where people aren't people of integrity. Integrity comes from the, the base word, integer. Mathematicians will tell you, an integer is a whole number. A dishonest person is somebody who is, who's partial. Their heart is halfway here and halfway there. God calls us to be people of honesty and the first act of honesty that will ever get through to helping your dishonesty and your sin struggle is to admit that you are dishonest. And ask God to help you and to deliver you from a lifestyle of independence, selfishness, and self-fulfillment over the, rather than truth. We confess that back to God. We become people whose yes is yes, whose no is no. There is no need to swear by this. How many, how many of you guys ever say this at the beginning of a sentence? If I'm being honest with you, honestly... Remove that from your vocabulary. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't give away your integrity. It is the only thing that is exclusively yours. And once you give it away, it's so hard to get it back. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for just some hard Verses, some hard truth this morning, again from James. As we close this letter and talk about patience and prayer and and James' purpose for writing this in the first place, I pray that all the things that we've been talking about, authentic faith and being authentic Christians who are quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, would resonate deeply within us, not only to know these verses and to know these truths, but to put them into practice. Help us to be honest with ourselves. Help us to be honest with our dishonesty at times. Give us the courage, give us the ability through your Holy Spirit to be patient people. We pray that the fruit of the Spirit would be evident in our lives as Christians. Love, joy, peace, and patience would shower everything we say and do. Give us the ability to bear with one another, to be slow to anger, to be patient people as Christ has been patient with us. And it's in His name that we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. <laughs>